Mystic Dan here, back in the hizzy for shizzy. Ready for another video? It's going to be a good one. This is on a very interesting topic. Sorry, that was weird. I felt like somebody was there. But anyway, uh, we're talking about uh, a book that is not exactly new. It came out some years ago, but it's uh, on a great topic. It's a book by John... G the fuck? There was somebody there. I felt... Uh, we're going to have to stop the video. I'm going crazy or something. I felt like there was somebody there. This is weird. Welcome to the third man factor. Oh, yeah. I see you. Yeah, we're friends now. What's up? So we're talking about John Geiger's book, The Third Man Factor. And in John Geiger's book, you will read some harrowing tales of mountain climbers, uh, solo explorers, polar explorers, and sailors who get themselves caught up in life-threatening situations and come close to the brink of death. In such situations, there is often a sensed presence, which uh, may be seen as another person there with you or just merely a felt presence, a strong feeling, no doubt, that there is someone else with you, guiding you, comforting you, uh, maybe instructing you, and giving you the strength to carry on when otherwise hope seems lost. It's called the third man factor, but it, it could be called the second man factor or the fourth man factor, depending on how many people are with you. Uh, it's basically another person with you. So if you're alone, then it would be a, a second man factor. Or if you're in a party of three, then it would be a fourth man factor. Some other presence, some other being is felt to be with you. And uh, sometimes uh, it is simply felt, like I said, sometimes heard or seen or both. Uh, in the presence of a being that mysteriously appears to join you in your time of need. Now, the presence is often there to tell you what to do to survive and give you the encouragement, strength, or hope necessary to go on when circumstances seem dire. Geiger opens his book with the experience of Ron DeFrancesco, who was working on the 84th floor of the South Tower of the World Trade Center on the morning of September 11, 2001, a day that will live in infamy when planes rammed into the buildings causing their collapse. When the plane sliced into the South Tower, striking the building's south face between floors 77 and 85, DeFrancesco was flung against the wall and showered with debris. He managed to enter a stairwell, which, fortunately, was protected from destruction by a big elevator machine room. He met up with some other survivors in the stairwell. However, it was filled with smoke, and visibility was low. After going up and down and trying to decide what to do, either wait for firefighters to rescue them or continue their descent, the group was blocked from further descent by debris obstructing the stairwell. Most had given up by this time and just lay on the concrete gasping for air in the thick smoke that filled the stairway. DeFrancesco would have given up too, but some presence propelled DeFrancesco to continue on. He said that someone called him and told him to get up. 
He says this was a male voice, but did not belong to any of the others in the stairwell. Furthermore, there was a clear sense of a physical presence to whomever the voice belonged to. He even said that he had the sensation that, quote, somebody lifted me up as if this presence was physically there and physically intervening in the situation to save his life. The presence guided him to resume his descent, which he did, fighting through drywall and other debris obstructing the stairwell. Then he encountered flames, which obviously caused him to stop and recoil. And he even mentions that, you know, fire is not something you go through, but this presence urged him to continue. And so he covered his head with his forearms and ran down the steps through the fire, which continued for about three stories. He finally came to a clear lit stairwell on the 76th floor. And only then did the sense of a presence disappear. So he continued down and exited the building, and he was the last person out of the South Tower before it collapsed. And this is a theme you'll see also in Geiger's book, is that the sense of a presence stays with you until the danger is over. Like the presence in DeFrancisco's case was felt until he got to... Um, until he got out of the flames down to a lower floor where everything was safe again and he could just walk down the stairs and get out. So the presence stays with you until you're out of danger. Um, let's go to the experience of Rob Taylor. He fell from an ice wall on Mount Kilimanjaro. Now, luckily, he was saved by his climbing rope but after slipping, he slammed into the ice wall, breaking his foot grotesquely. He had to pop the bones of his shin and foot back into place. His boot filled with blood, and at 18,000 feet elevation, and over 70 miles from the nearest medical help, he suddenly found himself in a race against time, as infection and gangrene were real possibilities. Now, he did have a climbing partner with him who tried to help him, as best he could get, get back down the mountain. But his partner named Warner uh, could not carry him very far. And Taylor himself was reduced to crawling and dragging himself on his, on his chest. This was obviously way too slow. So it was decided for Taylor to bivouac or camp out while Warner went to get help. Now Warner assured him that help should arrive by the following morning. However, no one came the next day, and Taylor ran into some more trouble when his stove ran out of fuel and he could no longer melt snow to get water. But then he noticed the figure of a man sitting serenely on a boulder some 50 yards away. He shouted out to the man, but the man did not respond to his shouts. The presence just sat there on the boulder watching and peering at him through the snow. After two more days and nights passed, Taylor started to give up hope that a rescue team would arrive. He figured something must have happened to Warner and he never made it down the mountain. His companion, however, the presence, moved closer and he says he felt it was, quote, very benevolent, peaceful, and reassuring. After some time, the presence suddenly departed and he felt alone. Mere minutes after he felt the presence leave, he heard his name being called. 
the rescue team had arrived. Now, what's interesting about that one is that the presence left a few minutes before he heard anybody, you know, yelling his name to come rescue him. So I guess conventionally, how would his mind have known that he was safe then? You would have to say that, you know, his unconscious picked up on sounds that he was not conscious of. And these subliminal sounds uh, alerted his mind that people were coming to save him, probably. And so got rid of the, um, got rid of the, the presence. Okay, now let's talk about conventional explanations. There are many theories. One of the leading ones involves the junction of the temporal and parietal lobes of the brain. Geiger says that that activity in this area, quote, is involved in our awareness of our physical self and helps us to distinguish between ourselves and someone else. The parietal lobe integrates and organizes sensory information, such as sight, sound, and body image. Basically, the brain integrates a bunch of sensory information to give you a sense of where you are at in space. The implication is that under conditions of extreme stress or oxygen deprivation, a disruption occurs in this part of the brain, which may cause you to hallucinate a sense of presence where there is none. As your brain is projecting a second self, a second body image where there is none. In one experiment, doctors using electrodes stimulated the temporoparietal junction of an epileptic woman and, quote, the patient sensed the presence of a sinister figure behind her who copied her actions. Now, obviously, that's a little bit different than the third man experiences, which do not involve presences simply copying your actions and are not interpreted as sinister. Other research headed by Michael Persinger sought to invoke the sensed presence by stimulating the brain via magnetic fields. Subjects who were told that they were in a relaxation experiment uh, put on a helmet fitted with solenoids to deliver magnetic pulses or fields to the subject's brains. Participants who received magnetic stimulation either just over the right hemisphere of the brain or equally over both hemispheres reported more experiences of a sensed presence and also fear. Obviously, these third man factor experiences are anything but fearful. They involve a very calming presence that helps people overcome extreme odds to survive. Although most of the reports published by Persinger involving uh, magnetic stimulation are unlike third man factor reports, uh, one or two do come close, such as this one from Persinger's 2006 study published in the International Journal of Neuroscience. Quote, I felt a presence behind me and then along the left side. When I tried to focus on its position, the presence moved. Every time I tried to sense where it was, it moved around. When it moved to the right side, I experienced a deep sense of security like I had not experienced before. I started to cry when I felt it slowly fade away. And it's explained that when it faded away, that's when they changed the field parameters or the magnetic stimulation. 
Now, the sense of security provided by the presence definitely pretends well with the comfort provided by the third man. However, there is still a discrepancy by the way it moved around when he tried to focus on it. In most third man uh, cases, when the presence is merely felt but not seen, people will turn around to look and see if somebody's there. But it's not as if when they turn around and they don't see any presence that they feel like the presence has moved to the other side or something. No, it's not like that. It's just that they'll feel somebody's behind them and then they'll look back and nobody's there, but they'll still feel their presence there. So there's still a discrepancy there with the magnetic stimulation um, uh, felt presence. So we can look at an experience like that, the one from Paul Firth, who was a South African who had a third man experience while descending from the summit of Aconcagua, a 22,834-foot peak in the Argentine Andes. He was exhausted on his way down and stopped to rest at about 22,000 feet. To his horror, he discovered that five of his fingers were blackened by frostbite. Not only that, it was getting dark and he risked death due to exposure if he didn't make it back to camp. Shortly after realizing his predicament, he, quote, abruptly developed a powerful sensation and stated, I was sitting there and then suddenly felt like there was somebody behind me. The hair went up on the back of my neck and I jumped up and I turned around to look for this person. And there was nobody there. I thought, gee, that's kind of odd. And I sat down and then thought, there's somebody with me. And I got up again and turned around and looked up the slope. And of course, every time he looked, there was no one there. He couldn't see them. However, upon continuing down the mountain, he describes that the presence was following behind him, encouraging him to keep going and even dispensing practical advice. He describes it as having a mental conversation with this presence who told him, quote, just focus on where you're going. Just put one foot in front of the other. Don't panic, end quote. Of course, this can easily be construed as talking to oneself with the false impression that you are talking to another, but it is really your own mind sort of split into an alternate personality whose purpose is to keep you calm and tell you what to do. Everything said are things you should know to do anyway, right? Don't panic, one foot in front of the other, right? These are things you should know anyway. But in times of extreme stress, your mind splits itself into you and another to allow a calmer voice to prevail, one unencumbered by the stresses that limit your thinking and ability to reason, your conscious, your conscious mind's ability to think and reason, that is. So at those times, you just have to take instruction from the other self the mind creates, which is a split off, which is split off from the stress of the situation and can calmly and rationally guide you. Then you don't have to think as much and have a better chance of surviving. Yep. That's, you know, that's a, that's a nice little story. Yeah. That's a nice little story. Um, it's all in the brain. Well, I guess we can wrap this up. It's just uh, 
brain dysfunction, or it's a coping mechanism of the brain in times of extreme stress to split off a part of, of the self into what's perceived as another self to help you out because you're under too much stress to think clearly. <laughs> now, what's the name of this channel again? Is it, what's the name? Is it Materialist Dan? No, no, that's not it. That's not it. Is, wait, is this channel, is it Atheist Dan? No, that can't be right. Although Atheist Dan did make an appearance in the last video uh, where we talked about Stephen Meyer's book. You might want to check that video out. Um, so let me tell you, Atheist Dan got his ass whooped by Stephen Meyer. Let's just say Atheist Dan is sulking in the corner. Probably won't be back for some time. But anyway, what, what's this channel called again? Is it, it's not Atheist Dan. It's not. Oh, yeah. Mystic Dan. Now, do you think Mystic Dan is going to be satisfied with it's all in the brain? End of story. <laughs> I don't think so. Right, Mystic Dan, here on this channel, we are looking for the paranormal. We are looking for situations and experiences that defy a materialistic, a normal explanation. So I think we can find some in this third man factor. Uh, let's go to the experience first of Joshua Slocum, who was sailing for Gibraltar as part of his attempt to circumnavigate the world alone when his boat was hit by a fierce squall. At the same time, Slocum became very ill and possibly from food poisoning, and he threw himself on the floor of his cabin near the wheel. He said, quote, I became delirious when I came to, as I thought from my swoon, I realized that the sloop was plunging into a heavy sea and looking out of the companionway, to my amazement, I saw a tall man at the helm. His hand rigid, grasping the spokes of the wheel, held them as if in a vice. The man at the helm who Slocum now saw assured him that he had come to do him no harm and that he would guide his ship tonight. The ship was in the midst of a storm with waves breaking and pounding on the ship's cabin, yet Slocum was not worried. Slocum said he felt as if he were, quote, in the presence of a friend and a seaman of vast experience. When the storm was over and he recovered, and retook the wheel, he found that his ship was still on course to Gibraltar, going like a racehorse, and had made 90 miles in the night as he lay incapacitated on the floor of his cabin. Now, this sort of experience really makes one wonder about the supernatural, because we have to ask the question, how could his ship, in the midst of heavy waves in this storm, have stayed on course throughout that you know, and gone 90 miles on course while he wasn't steering the ship, okay? Well, I guess we could say he just got lucky, right? You know, maybe. Or maybe a third man, an actual seaman from past times possibly who took bodily form again from the spirit and steered the ship uh, for him during that time. 
After all, that's what he seemed to experience. Then there's the experience of Brian Shoemaker, who was flying in Antarctica when he lost all radio contact with the base he was supposed to be flying to. Now, he was flying with some others, but there was no navigator on board, and the landscape was an endless sea of white, so he couldn't get a bearing on where he was or where he should go. He thought he might be flying off course or even flying around in circles. After some time, Shoemaker says he felt a presence with them in the cockpit. It spoke to him, assuring him that he was doing all right. It then told him to, quote, turn to a heading about 20 degrees to the right. He did so, saying, quote, I had nothing else to go by. It was eerie. It wasn't frightening. It was a solace. That was the decision I had to make. Follow it or follow my own. And I had no idea which way to go. So here we have a case where it seems like he received knowledge that he could not have known by normal means. I mean, after all, all he saw was a vast expanse of white, no landmarks to get a bearing on where he was. But the presence told him to turn to a specific heading. And that heading, in fact, did lead to the base he was supposed to go to. Now, I guess you could argue that, again, subliminally, his unconscious mind picked up on clues, uh, some clues from the ground that, uh, that it used to, to figure out where he should go and that his mind created a second self to inform him of what his subconscious mind knew to be the right heading based on those subliminal cues. But it seems really odd for the mind to work that way, right? I mean, it seems like why wouldn't that information just feed up to his conscious mind and he become conscious of those clues. Oh yeah, I see this and this. I should probably turn this way. Why would the brain create a second self? After all, he felt a presence there, like a person was there with him. Uh, just to give him that information. It seems a little bit strange. Okay. Now, the last um, head-scratching experience I'll share comes not from Geiger's book but from the forum he set up for people around the world to share their experiences. The experience of John Robbins. John Robbins attempted to body surf near an empty ocean. He describes how the beach was empty that day. He didn't see anybody. And he went out to body surf. He was a kid, just 13 years old, I believe. And he got caught up in some strong waves. Now, caught in the midst of the extremely strong waves um, being battered about, he tried to dive down and came up gasping for air only to be crushed by another wave. He eventually realized he was about to die. He says, quote, I was having flashes of my life, which seemed like an instant rerun of my entire life. Suddenly to my left, there was a man with a flimsy little air mat, like one might use in a swimming pool, saying, you look like you could use some help. Take hold of this. I did, and the next thing I remember is that I am gliding into the shore on the leading edge of the whitewater of the third and largest wave. This memory defies all logic of what should happen in such a situation. 
Even with an air mat to hold on to, being hit by a wall of white water of that size would still thrash someone about with great ferocity. And yet, it seemed as if I just glided into the shore. Needless to say, I was exhausted by the experience and needed a few moments to recover my breath. I sat on the water's edge, arms on my knees, panting. Then I thought to thank my rescuer. I looked up and there was no one visible in either direction along the shoreline. Nor was there anyone further back on the beach. There was no air mat. I was alone. Now, it certainly seems quite odd that this rescuer would simply disappear after rescuing a kid when there was no one else around on an empty beach. You know, most people, if you rescue a kid like that in the water and he's <laughs> panting or something, you're going to go up and say, kid, are you okay? You know, what happened? Why were you out there? Where's your family? You're going to start questioning the kid. You're not just going to leave him there and disappear. Yet, um, the, the, the man just disappeared. And he even mentions that another odd thing was that the man who he saw save him looked like a balding, middle-aged, somewhat paunchy working man who was not an experienced beach person. He said he had white skin, not tan, like he had been at the beach long or was there often. And he mentions that he could see for quite a distance, so he should have been able to see the man leaving the scene when he looked up to thank him. And he says there was nobody on the beach when he went out to body surf. So unless this is just the mind playing tricks on you and hallucinating a man there when he was just, you know, carried by the wave and nobody was actually there... Um, it really makes you think that um, possibly there is something supernatural going on. So we have to understand that the order of the universe, the laws of physics and the order of nature, these are just, you know, regularities of nature. But every once in a while, something materializes, defies those laws, you might say, or the laws as we know them. This may be a UFO, this may be a presence which comes into our material world to help us overcome a distressing or life-threatening situation. This kind of thing, though, will never be reproduced in a laboratory. It will never be validated by science simply because, you know, you're not going to set up an experiment where you bring someone to the brink of death, okay? It's, it's unethical. It's not going to happen. But there are times in real-life situations where interventions seem to be made from a higher dimension of reality, breaks through into this dimension, and saves us. Now, some things we didn't cover um, which are interesting about the phenomenon is that the experience can involve a sense of presence, which is unknown to the person, like they sense a presence, but... It's not familiar. They don't know who it is. They just sent somebody there. But it also may involve a presence who's familiar, like they, they feel like it's their deceased friend who died five years ago. Even it can be a sensed presence who they, who's a person that's still living, like one person described uh, feeling like his wife was there, even though you know she's back in San Francisco or wherever, she's still alive. But the presence felt like that of his wife. Okay? 
Also, another interesting aspect is these can be shared experiences. So like three climbers climbing up a mountain, you know, might all have the experience. And even if they don't communicate with each other about it at the time, later when they get to camp and they're sipping tea, you know, one hiker might say, you know, do you guys, uh, do you guys see anyone with us out there? And then the other hiker will, another hiker will be like, yeah, yeah, I, I saw somebody. There was somebody else with us. There was a fourth man. And then the other one will say, yeah, I felt somebody was there too. So sometimes it's a shared experience. They all experience this together. Okay, um, so check out Geiger's book if you're interested in that topic. And he also wrote a follow-up called The Angel Effect, um, which is more stories uh, uh, similar to The Third Man, I guess. Now, for my next video, I've been thinking about a few different books, all of which I'm itching to read, you could say. Um, one is Michael Behe Answers His Critics. That would be on the topic of intelligent design and why there must be an intelligence responsible for the evolution of life. Another book is uh, by Eric Wargo. We covered his, um, his book called Time Loops in another video. He's got a new one called Precognitive Dreamwork in the Long Self, Interpreting Messages from Your Future. So I guess this would be about um, dreaming of the future, having precognitive dreams. Uh, that might be interesting. And also I've been thinking about reading professor, or I'm sorry, philosopher, Michael Grosso's newest book, Smile of the Universe, Miracles in the Age of Disbelief, which, of course, I haven't read it, but I figure that's on, you know, miracles that are well-attested, meaning they have many witnesses, but which um, defy scientific explanation. So if you are interested in any of those, let me know down in the comments, and if you get... You get a comment in within the next couple of days. I might, in fact, pick that one to do next. So the next video should be coming in the next couple of weeks. Of course, um, every YouTuber needs to give us a little spiel at this point. Hit the like button if you liked it. Hit the dislike button if you hated it. If you hated this video, just dislike. But hopefully you liked it. Okay, <laughs> hopefully you hit that like button. <laughs> anyway subscribe if you want to subscribe or you can donate to the channel to keep this channel running full steam ahead let me do this full time okay but anyway it's been a pleasure and we'll be back with another exciting video as always peace out